You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. All right, let's get back to some boring subjects. Understand the risk to our country. Freedom brings people together. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. Well, <laughs> it's going to be 2028 before I stop doing that. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. I have no idea where my co-hosts are, uh, but I assume they'll be along, especially now that they've gotten the notification that we've gone live, but they're late. 17 minutes late. Can't wait around anymore, Harry. Ryan Hold, where you at? Somebody tag them. Make sure that they're okay. Everybody go on their social media, go on their Facebook, go in the Discord, and just ask, you know, hey, where are you? Okay, well, Robert. Bye. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Warning, this show is for adults by semi-adults, so the language is sometimes strong and offensive. Uh, I don't know what I said. Uh. Welcome to the Chris Bangle Show. Our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. If you struggle to understand politics, we explain it from an independent libertarian point of view. With all of the irreverence it deserves, we toss out the screaming heads, put people before political parties, and give context to the news to make you think. Now, here's our host, Chris Spangle, a 15-year veteran of politics and media. Welcome to the show. My name is Chris Spangle. Thanks for being here. You can check me out. If you don't know anything about me at chris-spangle.com. Before we start, I want to thank... All of the members of the Wall Plus uh, membership program. It's our Patreon. It's what we call it. WAL for We Are Libertarians. Go to joinwalplus.com and get all kinds of great benefits. We have extra shows uh, scheduled out till March. And you can get all those right now. You can get them ad-free. You can get uh, the back catalog. There's almost 1,070 episodes of the We Are Libertarians the old shows from the old network and then all the different shows that I've done. You can go check that out now at joinwallplus.com. And I want to thank our $100 a month members, John Pusillo, Casey Feldposh, Lars Nordskog, Jake Edel, Matthew Durbin, Reinhold, Christy Avery, and Jason Doolittle. And I want to especially thank Jeff Bennett, who uh, you heard if you were listening to one of the previous shows uh, w- where I talked to Jeff, who is a business owner, a small business owner of uh, an ice cream store, Ampersand Ice Cream, out in Fresno, California. And he talked about the hardship of owning a business in California at this time. And it is getting a lot harder out there. I don't know what I'm allowed to say, but he was telling me that there, um, there are a lot of code violations. So they opened up the state like two days before that was set to air. Uh, Newsom is just has like horrible marks for his handling of the lockdowns, rightly so. And the, he said in Fresno, there are, are recall Newsom 
yard signs everywhere in Fresno. But they waited until about a week after they opened up and they started going around to all the different businesses and giving them code violations, revoking business licenses permanently. Uh, you know, it just it never ceases to amaze how poorly California treats its businesses and drives jobs other places. So uh, but Jeff was so nice to send me some ampersand ice cream. I sampled all the flavors last night. Uh, and it was really, really good. So if you're in the California area, you're near Fresno, make sure you go check out Ampersand Ice Cream. Uh, Today I'm going to talk about minimum wage, uh, but first I want to read a letter from one of our patrons, and it... uh, They write, thank you so much for everything you do. I just found the site, and I love it. I consider myself a libertarian, and I have for about three years now. I'm also a devout Orthodox Lutheran. I also run into arguments I cannot... That I cannot be a conservative Christian and be a libertarian, but I disagree. I do not agree with gay marriage on a moral level, but on a constitutional level, I don't see any argument against it. The same goes with legalizing marijuana. I do disagree with abortion on all levels, but that's a discussion for a different time. Just wanted to say thank you and keep up the good work. So another nice note from folks. Make sure you go to Join Wall Plus to support the network. Uh, like I said, today we are going to talk about minimum wage, take a, uh, just a little bit of a look at Joe Biden's plans, um, but really get into why minimum wage is harmful to, for jobs. And I will remind you now and I remind you later that jobs are people's hopes, dreams, rent, food, uh, education for their children. It's not just about being greedy and wanting money. It's about making sure that uh, people have enough money to achieve what they want to achieve. Now, Let's accept a public apology from both Reinhold and Harry Price. You're both late. Where the hell have you been? Well, I can't hear you, Harry. See, if you had been here early, we could have tested this out. We could hear you. Uh, Actually, that was my fault. Never mind. Harry, explain yourself. Where the hell have you been? Let's put blame where real blame is always due because... Originally, the show, we were supposed to always go live at 8 a.m., but Spangle could never really make it there at 8 a.m. So, you know, I got out of my routine of working out early in the morning to do the show then, and then we would delay till like 10 o'clock and then start by 10.30. So now we've been doing consistently at 10 o'clock, and then he posted it's being made by 10.15. That's okay. I've got a little kid in the house who doesn't go by your set schedules, but that's okay. You know, if you must be, and if you want to know where I was, it's because my uh, little sweet, gorgeous of a daughter, uh, somehow as small as she is, can clog a toilet. I don't understand <laughs> it. I don't get it, but she can. Uh, I do not accept your public apology. I feel that it was very weak. Uh, it. <laughs> I set the stream for ten fifteen, but we always meet at ten o'clock. And I don't, Reinhold. I don't know that we've ever done the show at eight a.m. What is he talking about? I think it was nine, but. The, the problem I had was that my camera decided this morning at 8 o'clock when I was getting ready to uh, quit working. You know so, what? I can't wait till they make co-host robots, and then I can replace I mean, the I, two of you. I, with- I tried my backup camera. It didn't work. <laughs> I figured I'd just come on without a, without a camera. Then about two, two minutes before we were to 10.15, so about 12, 10.13, it came on. It started working. That's okay. Well... Yeah, Harry, I don't – I have a little one running around my house, and we just hit the age where everything is a tableau for art. 
yep. <laughs> including the front of my Mac, which now yep. has nice a nice decorative design of swirlies, murals on the walls. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. really destructive. It's like it's like toddlers do not respect my back seat. Yeah, at all, at all. Like um, I have just given up on the the back that back seat of my car. <laughs> right, just like nope, that's just going to get destroyed. <laughs> Whatever that crumb crusted concrete funk is in the back right corner of the car is just staying there, and it's not coming out because no matter how hard I try to keep my investment nice, <laughs> it always fails. Um, first off, cars are not investments. Cars depreciate way too fast to be investments unless they are a collector car. Okay, Mr. Which, Dogecoin. Hey, diamond hands over here. I'm holding on to my Doge because I can't find my wallet, but diamond hands. <laughs> you, you never found it? <laughs> no, I still can't find it. I have no idea where it's at. I think there might be a backup of that hard drive at my mom's house. And I'm this close to driving down to Bloomington and go check. Oh, you should. You should. You You've got like... Three days left before it's back to like point zero 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 five cents. Now, what if it goes to the moon? Okay, because what if it goes to the moon? No. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to the moon. You're just, all right. You're smarter than that. Come on. You're smart enough to have two houses. You know you should sell that Dogecoin. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. As soon as, yeah. You've got to put it all in Garlic Coin. Garlic Coin is where you must invest. Yeah. Uh, uh, full disclosure. Uh, my mom is actually driving up to here from Bloomington right now. So. I'm going to crash the freaking market myself. <laughs> did, did, she, did she find it? I don't know. She's just bringing my backup drive up, so I'm selling. I'm If it's there, I'm selling. I'm sorry. I hope it is. You'll have to keep us updated and let us know next week. Um, next week he won't show up because he'll have made so much money. He's just done with it. He's retired. <laughs> He's going to be in Hawaii. Yeah, not that. No, no. I've got enough to pay off one mortgage, so... No, well, he has to be here next week because it may be the the Saturday that we celebrate Black History Month. Mm-hmm. So, oh, it, we only get one Saturday, so we get the shortest month and one Saturday on on the. Well, at least work. it's not the shortest Saturday. Yeah, but I'm concentrating it, so I'm inviting Dion Curry on from the Pat Down. Oh, nice! And nice. we're gonna we're gonna just really it's gonna be fun. Sure. Uh, all right, so let's get started with the show. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the minimum wage and Joe Biden's uh, $1.9 trillion proposal aimed at the economic recovery. These are great notes, again, by Sam Schultz, our lead researcher here at the We Are Libertarians Network. Put together great notes three weeks ago. We've just been getting delayed, delayed, delayed getting to it. But uh, you know, we want to talk about the minimum wage today because I think there's a lot of – I mean it feels right that you would just demand that businesses increase the minimum wage – so people can have a livable wage. People should, if they work, get paid for their money, right? What 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 problem could you possibly have with the government mandating that a business pay somebody a livable wage? Uh, so we're going to explain why it doesn't work. And it's not because we're evil, heartless, cold bastards. It's just because uh, anytime the government tries to do anything, they're bad at it. Uh, but – the reason this is on the table is because of Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion proposal uh, that he's put forth. And when this came out, you know, a lot of things get put into these bills in the proposal because they're meant to be taken out. The minimum wage, $15 an hour raise, is one of those things, in my view, that was never really going to pass and was never really on the table. It was, you know, it's, it's, 
like Donald Trump always did this. It's in the art of the deal. You go further than you want to go so you can pull it back to where it needs to be. You know, if you want a salary of $100,000, you say, I want $150,000 and then negotiate back to 100, right? That's um, what I hope to do one day. <laughs> um, but in this proposal, let's just take a little bit of a look at the rescue plan that he has put together. So build is the American rescue plan. The package augments many of the measures in Congress's three $3 trillion Corona relief bill from March and in the $900 billion legislation from December. The plan calls for spending another $1,400 per person to eligible receipts. Now, this is... You'll notice that this show will not be covering any alphabet Congress people. <laughs> I'm, I don't care. I don't want to talk about them. Like I think that a lot of people are just being cretinous towards AOC, Marjorie Taylor Greene, MTD, or whatever we're calling her. Like you just got to be a better person if you're going to have the power of if you're going to sit on top of the monopoly of violence, right? But all that aside, like we're getting distracted with that stuff. One of those distractions is whether or not Joe Biden is fulfilling his promise of $2,000. You know, so December you get 600 bucks, and then he's, he's proposing $1,400 per person, and they're putting out graphics saying, see, we fulfilled that promise because that's what all the executive orders are about. He's just trying to look like he's fulfilling promise after promise. So he can – what every president does. Oh, in my first 100 days, I was just like FDR and was a fundamental transformer. Um, even though, as you heard last week, most of these executive orders don't do anything. Uh, and so the Republicans and the Democrats are arguing over – like, and it's not even really the Republicans. It's really like far left versus left. Like, No, we want $2,000. Well, no, you can have $1,400. Well, that's not fulfilling your campaign promise. I want two. No, it's 2000 because 1400 plus six. It's like the craziest Twitter argument that doesn't matter to people, but it's like the whole journalist infrastructure just gets sucked into this debate of whether or not it's 1400 or 2000 or what. Like, it's just I, every time I turn on, because I've been taking Harry's suggestion a lot, and just I've deleted the apps from my phone, I look at Facebook and Twitter maybe a couple times after my work duties are done in the morning. And I just turn it on, Harry, and I'm just like, this is dumb. Why? Who cares? Shut up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Isn't it great without all the beeps, the boops, the colorful lighting? It's like, huh, huh, this is just tricking me to come here. Yeah. You know? We're arguing over whether or not you need another $600, which, spoiler alert, most people don't need another $600. They don't really need the $1,400. Some do. Most don't. Like, <laughs> I mean, so. Uh, so that's an update on a, a meaningless controversy. Uh, Biden would also increase the federal unemployment aid to $400 a week, up from the $300 weekly enhancement contained in Congress's relief package from December. This plan would also provide $25 billion in rental assistance for low- and moderate-income households who have lost jobs during the pandemic. That's in addition to the $25 billion approved in December. Another $5 billion would be set aside to help renters pay their utility bills. The plan would extend the federal eviction moratorium set to expire at the end of January to September 30th, as well as allow people with federally guaranteed mortgages to apply for forbearance until September 30th. Again, mandating that property owners uh, 
don't have to collect income on their investment from renters is just kicking the can down the road. You're creating an artificial bubble. You are not helping people. You are going to have a much worse housing crisis than 2008 if we do this for two years and you can't evict people because of non-payment for rent. People are going to take advantage of it, and you're going to end up with a a it's it's trying to make a fix in this crisis that will create another crisis that will mean another fix for another crisis, and it's a never-ending moral hazard. Uh, mm-hmm. So, um, we'll go ahead, Harry. It's also like uh, driving inventories low on houses. And then because there's people like myself who have houses that are rental properties that want to put things up for rent but won't because if I can't evict someone, I'd rather have that house sit there. It's a perfectly good house. Anyone can live in it. I'm not going to charge that much much for it. But if I can't evict someone, I'm not letting – I'd rather just sit there and just be a storage unit. Right. So right. housing housing availability goes down, which means the price goes up because the demand increases. The supply goes down. Price goes up. So you're not – it's not a fix. Evan says – the new announcement is that the $1,400 will start phasing out if you make over 50000 a year, so the people who are paying the tax aren't going to get the stimulus. Um, so I still have not gotten my stimulus. I apparently am going to get a $600 rebate. Um, so this is funny. Jeremiah, the boss hog of liberty, tagged his, uh, tagged his congressman, Greg Pence, Mike's brother, and some smart staffer named Liz saw that I was a member of the media and reached out and said, hey, I'll help you get your stimulus. And so they're they're talking to the IRS, which may trigger an audit, and it may be stupid, but uh, they're looking into it, so I should find something out soon. You want to stay off the radar. Uh, right. Yep. <laughs> Is that what you did? You painted your fingernails with your stimulus? Yeah, I went to the salon, got my, <laughs> my feet and my hands done, and I bought this beanie, got my nice. stimmy. Nice. Uh, the plan, da, 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 da. the plan also calls on Congress to create 25 billion emergency fund and add 15 billion to an extending existing grant program to help child care providers. Biden is also calling on Congress to subsidize through September the premiums of those who lost their work-based health insurance. So we'll subsidize health insurance through September, and that'll of course be extended. Um, you remember when uh, unemployment after 9-11 was extended for like three years? They just kept mm-hmm. extending the unemployment insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember like, when they dropped the intru- the, uh, the prime lending rate down to zero, and it's been mm-hmm. there ever since, and it's caused all kinds of problems that we're dealing with now. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, yeah. it's the same thing. Over, It's caused most of the problems we're having now anyway, because mm-hmm. if people have been able to save money over the past decade, we wouldn't have had this issue where they they couldn't go to work for a couple months. They would have had money to fall back on. It wouldn't have been been such a devastating thing. But nobody saves money anymore because there's no incentive to anymore because you can't get more than one percent on a savings account. So what's the point? Yeah. Oof. Oof. Anyone else feel that was going to be a, like a Ryan Hall had to hold himself back from a rant? There, he was going to go on for thirty minutes. <laughs> I could have gone for more than thirty minutes. It allowed me to find the the information I needed, so I was okay with it. Um, so Jen asks, "Forgive me, but isn't homelessness also bad for the economy? What's the fix?" Uh, a, we are probably the only libertarian podcast that has ever had episodes on homelessness. I invite you to go to the Chris Spangle Show feed, Google search for homelessness. We've got a couple episodes on it. Um, it, it, it so here's the people will always adjust. So 
if you're looking for a public solution to the problem, the point is that you always create – there's unintended consequences. Any, it, it's all about trade-offs. So it's if – you, if you intervene in this way now, the trade-off is that you're going to create a bubble that can and probably will make the problem worse. We saw that with cash for clunkers. And they were trying to retire in the the last crisis. They were trying to retire cars, give people money so they could buy a newer car, and that artificially drove up the price of used cars and made it unaffordable for people to buy a decent used car, including myself at the time, who was very, very, very poor. Uh, And, you know, so I ended up in a, a loan, which then... I still haven't totally paid off that loan because you roll it into another car, right? So you just keep paying. You get into a cycle of debt. So the problem where as before cash for clunkers, you could pay cash for a car. You then had to take out a loan to get uh, cash for clunkers. So um, if, if someone is – it's not automatic that people will end up homeless. A lot of people will move in with family as they as they already have. I mean a lot of people are not participating in just, you know, screw you, landlord. I'm not going to do this. They they move in with family. They move out of the, the place so it doesn't go on their record. Um, but by any estimate, there's about 9 million people affected uh, that, that are kind of participating in this, in this rollover. Uh, Harry, what were you going to say? Uh, with the cash for clunkers program also drove up the price of fixing used cars because a lot of those parts were also crushed and had to be stripped down to their base components. So even if you have a used car, they drove the price of fixing those used cars up. Right. It's the reason why, like, I tell people, like, hey, don't buy that car because there's not that many of those. So you're not going to find the parts for it. Yeah. Art- intervening in the market creates it, it. It's like we said, it makes rent more expensive because it lowers the availability of the supply. And the other question, too, is we've been trying to fight homelessness as a public issue for how many decades? It's not gotten that much better, has it? I mean, um, in some no, I mean, in some ways, the the you know, what's going on in the episode that we just posted yesterday, actually, about homelessness. It's it's a look at how a city of Indianapolis, the 12th largest city with about twenty five hundred homeless people experiencing homeless at this time in Indianapolis how the city deals with that in a private way. So the thing about Indianapolis is that they don't they have one public organization which is the person that I talked to, but there there is simply like a clearinghouse of information that coordinates amongst all these different private organizations that care for the homeless population in Indianapolis. And that's how the city deals with it through private means and it works fairly effective, but there are still a lot of problems. They just got a, a grant from HUD that's going to go to many of these private organizations that are going to solve more of the problems that, you know, uh, like we have one mission that is basically religious-based. That's the biggest mission, and so people don't want to go there because they don't want to to deal with the religiosity of it. And so there's, you know, people who are funding non – you know, it's it's – it's like any other market, right? The private, the private institutions adapt and change and grow and, and change. So, um, but uh, search back. We talk a little bit about homelessness, and uh, it's a very complicated problem to solve. Um, 
Biden's plan calls for providing $15 billion to create a new grant program for small business owners separate from the existing Paycheck Protection Program. It also proposes a $35 billion investment in some state, local, tribal, and nonprofit financing programs that make low-interest loans and provide venture capital to entrepreneurs. Biden wants to send $350 billion to state, local, and territorial governments to keep their frontline workers employed distribute the vaccine, increase testing, and reopen schools. The plan would provide an additional $170 billion to K-12 schools, colleges, and universities. The plan would give $20 billion to public transit agencies. Biden is also calling on Congress to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour and to end the tipped minimum wage and sub-minimum wage for people with disabilities. Um, like homelessness, you know, where with with artificially intervening in the rent issue, you end up potentially creating more homeless down the line because of the cost, the price increases of rent. Minimum wage is one of those interventions that end up costing more jobs for the low income worker than if you just had never intervened at all. Um, so let's talk about Joe Biden's plan. I mean, uh I'm against it. How about you? <laughs> <laughs> Brian, you like you want to say something? No. Oh, okay. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's goofy because it, it barely does anything. Even if it, it's more show, it's a lot of show pop and fire in the pan, just like the all, most of the executive orders were. It's like, well, we're going to do this for fellow employees and stuff like this. And then you just look at it and go like, how many federal employees are actually making this this low amount that aren't interns or part time, or early, you know, yeah, or, or just, food service, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Or in like some segment of a category that is doing this, you know, you know, because it's it is it's strange when you walk there because like um and I gotta put it like. In this time, we all know, like the government, uh, government agencies that most of these people make buco, but no, I can't say buku bucks, but they most people in a professional setting over the age of eighteen and has a real time job are probably going to try to make around fifteen dollars an hour working for the government. If not, you get moved up, or it's just something that you do for your first ninety days. It's just what it's just which most government jobs are. The other problem with a lot of this is that. A lot of this money never gets spent. So, in if you look back at the bailouts of two thousand and eight and the you know the TARP program, cash for clunkers, a lot of this money will will be allocated for these things, whatever gets passed, and then it will never be actually it will never actually be used. So, like TARP for the banks was like eight hundred billion dollars, and they only use like like five hundred billion, and that all got paid back by the banks, but. Uh, you know, we've really created a moral hazard with the, the intervention at that time because, you know, the feds, as we talked about with Douglas last week, the whole point of the the Fed and their mission is to create stability. So whatever we need to do, whatever money we need to spend at the federal level to keep everybody kind of stable because they want to just kind of print money and make sure nobody defaults because if that mm-hmm. happens, you start getting into deflation or in, and inflation and it's – so stability is the name of the game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of this money will just not be accessed. It will be accessed by f- with fraud. It will be, you know, there. It's there's so many different problems with it. Now the Republicans have um, come up with their own plan, and it is a lot smaller. 
I believe it was six hundred billion versus the the one point nine trillion. And this is a graphic from the Washington Post. And uh, let me make this bigger. Um, so instead of the direct payments of uh, you know fourteen hundred dollars, the GOP wants to severely limit that about half. Four sixty-five to two twenty. Uh, Biden wants to give three hundred and fifty billion to state and local governments. The Republicans want to give them zero. Uh, state and local governments have been hit the hardest in this. So, for all your conspiratorial friends who think that state and local governments love the lockdowns, that it, now Newsom and Cuomo will give will accept them. But and some of these blue state governors seem like they are really uh, loving the lockdown and the power that they have. But you know, when I talk to people here in Indiana, they're like, no, we lost a billion dollars over two months last year in in uh, local revenue taxes, you know, both income taxes, sales taxes, food and beverage taxes. And so state and local employees were actually the most laid off segment of all workers in 20 and uh, in 2020 because they lost so much revenue that they were, you know, a lot of projects got canceled. So... <laughs> I mean, maybe we should have more pandemics. Uh, But so you have uh, – so that's why the the Republicans don't want to bail them out and give them anything is because they don't want uh, – it's sort of a way to undercut. Uh, But the trade-off there is that by weakening state and local governments, you are empowering the federal government, and so you are are – uh, increasing centralization so the republicans are kind of indirectly with with not bailing them out by like trying to in in like directly keep them from being funded you make them more dependent on federal money because they're going to get federal money right it's it's going to uh they're going to become more and more dependent you'll hear next week our conversation about the breaking of the structure and the need for nullification and empowerment of state and, state and local governments in our conversation with Michael Bolden of the 10th Amendment Center. So unemployment insurance, the Democrats want $350 billion. The Republicans want 132 Schools reopening, $170 billion from Biden, $20 billion from the Republicans. Direct pandemic response, which is like PPE and other issues, both are at parity at $160 billion. Child tax credit, $120 billion for biden zero for the republicans um man you'd think that the republicans would be all for a tax credit but they they're uh they're not um small businesses equal at 50 billion uh, child care 40 billion 20 billion for the republicans this money is uh, meant to help low-income workers in lockdown states where schools are closed uh, in the fall time, rental assistance zero from the Republicans, thirty-five billion from the Democrats. So uh, that's just a comparison of the plans. It, Susan Collins is leading the charge there. Uh, Ten Republican senators met with Joe Biden early last week uh, to discuss their changes. Joe Manchin is the deal maker. He is the one that is deciding what is or is not going to be used. Um, thoughts on any of that, fellas? I am also shocked at the child tax credit one from yeah. the Republicans. That that's a sh- that's still a shocker. It's like, wow, you guys be up for it, but apparently not. <laughs> yeah. And the uh 
I think the school reopening one, I think it's just more to push to like, you know, like try to push them like, well, just open your schools. It'll be fine. It'll be okay. Just open the dang schools. Yeah, we have. <laughs> because, they see, oh, because I think it's just almost like saying the quiet, uh, keeping the quiet part quiet. It's like the most public schools are just, you know, government funded daycare anyway. So they're just kind of like. Well, that's a little bit of an over exaggeration, but uh, you. So. We have an episode coming out Wednesday, I believe, on why schools should reopen. I was a very sloppy interviewer, but the the gist of it is basically that, like, the spread in schools is very, very, very minimal, especially now with teachers boss hogging their way to the front of the vaccine line. There's – the majority of the misery caused by lockdowns and the pandemic is coming from – uh, schools being closed. You know, mm-hmm. schools have become the welfare distribution center. It's where kids ask for help when they're in abusive situations. Child abuse is skyrocketing, and the only reason we know that is because there are more dead children showing up at the hospital. Uh, and those would have been prevented if they had a teacher or a counselor that was keeping a watchful eye on them that could intervene and have conversations with the parents. So, you know, schools being closed is causing, you know, and women are dropping, dropping out of the workforce en masse because somebody has to stay, take, stay home and take care of the kids. It puts extra financial pressure on the families. It makes the need for a $1.9 billion proposal being more readily available. And you weigh all of the societal costs of keeping schools closed compared with the risk of community spread and COVID, and it's – it's a no-brainer for people who are just being honest. Schools need to be reopened. So here's what I find interesting about all that. Aren't the Republicans and the conservatives the ones that have been pushing for homeschooling and stopping the public school system and and teaching their kids at home? Yeah, but, the, I mean, and, and that's the whole thrust of the episode that I do with Satya Morar is that they're learning pods and homeschooling, and people are looking at this going – they're watching the teaching that the kids are getting. And they're going, all right, let's homeschool. Let's do something different. We're, we're, we're all working online. Let's go work from Hawaii while our kids do school online. You know, uh, Homeschooling and different means of schooling and school choice are being expanded because of all of this. And I have said on this program for years, Reinhold, Harry has probably heard me say it. The internet has broken apart everything except education and government. And the pandemic is breaking apart education and government and is starting to work towards decentralizing that. So you know, mm-hmm. people are realizing that they can do it on their own. They don't need the state to do it for them. Then right. Why are they so intense on getting the schools back open again? Why, why, are, why are the Republicans and the conservatives so like because people are Because people are dying. <laughs> I mean, it's you're making kind of the collapsitarian argument. I'm all for school choice, but I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying I don't understand why the Republicans aren't for this. Why they're so intent on getting the schools open again when they're the ones who keep saying that they should be closed and people should be homeschooling. Right, because people are suffering, and you have to have a transitionary period. Like this is one of the. You you have to have a period of time where you transition from government schools to full school school choice, no state schools whatsoever. Because if you just cut it off and go fend for yourself, everybody, like you have mass societal chaos like we've had in a lot of low-income homes across the country. 
Correct. Yeah, showing the thing, the the idea of like, when I'm in office, I'm going to destroy the you know, the the, the close all public schools. This is what, this is kind of what happens. You just right. can't do it. You need to phase it out. But I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is that if that's the case, then why aren't they pushing for that? Why are they since since the whole thing started in May or whatever? They were like, we have to keep schools open. We have to get schools back open. We have to get them open now. We have to get them open. And it's been like a big focus for you know Trump and the and the Republicans all of last year. Well, part of it's and driven. It seems- because, you know, for for Trump's part, part of it was he felt that it would look good to his base. I mean, right. but uh, mm-hmm. some of our more conservative leaning friends here, John weighs in saying, I think they're wanting them back because the kids need social activity. The isolation and staring at screens has been a problem. I've seen that in my own family with school age kids. It's very but difficult. There's, a there's also a problem with having kids learning social interactions with other kids instead of around adults. Right. Mm-hmm. That's always been my problem with schools is that you throw these kids together and they're trying to figure out how to, how to interact with each other socially. Whereas a homeschooling type of situation, you could still have the kids interacting with other people, but you have them interacting more with adults than they do with kids. They learn adult ways of dealing with issues and, and how people interact instead of kids trying to figure it out on a playground. No, I think that, and you're making the argument for homeschooling in general. And I totally agree with you. I'm, I'm on board with you 100%. I just I just look at this and I go, you cannot completely radically change the way that things are done and not have serious consequences because, as Darla says, not everyone can do homeschooling. And so that's why educational savings accounts are being, you know, Georgia and Florida just started them. Indiana has a version of it. And so the money follows the student. You've heard that a lot, right? So your mm-hmm. tax dollars follow the student so they can choose how and where they go to school as opposed to, you know, you just paying taxes on a school plus for private schooling or homeschooling. Correct, yeah. I, I think that's another thing that's also showing, like, the the feature of the system is that kids learn differently. You have to allow them to get moved around. I think a lot of parents, especially of young boys, are noticing that they can't just sit there and learn for, like, for like eight hours a day sitting in their chair. If you let that kid get up, run in your backyard, come back in, he'll sit there and study for, like, a couple of minutes for an hour. Then let him run back outside, play, like, do a sport, come back in and study all day and be a blast. And yeah. they're wondering, like, oh. That's why this one kid can't, you know, do good at school because right, it can't be people. Active. People and have that's the-, the other thing, too, is that it, kids really have different ways of learning. And we, I keep hearing stories from people saying kids need to be in a school because of blah, 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 blah. I would have gone. I, I would have done much better, not only in school, but in life. If I had not had to go to a school, if I had learned everything online, I, I mm-hmm. think that way. That's the way my brain works. That's what stimulates me that that's I would have gone a lot farther and I can prove that through other training that I did after school and, and working with computers and everything. Right. So there are kids like that, that don't interact well with other kids at school. There's bullies, there's people getting, there's all kinds of issues in a school environment. So some kids do fine. Some kids need it. Some kids would be better off if they were doing home learning. I think what we come out of this with are more options Yeah, where they can still do remote learning for kids who want to do that or do better doing that. And the kids who want to be in the school can go and do the school too, but give the option for both. Don't make it a one size fit all cookie cutter because that doesn't work. 
Yeah. Like just like everything that we're talking about, when you do a cookie cutter approach to individualized problems, you never get good results other than the median, if you're lucky. And that's what government tries to do all the time. Kathleen says the way we approach special education is the way we should approach all education, individually student-centered. Ron says some kids only get one good meal a day at school. And Ron's right. And and I totally – we're not having an argument because we're all in agreement, I think. You know, the, the reality is that you, you spent 100 years building this system and making people dependent on a system. You – can't just rapidly change it and not expect horrifying consequences. And all these charities that I talk to on Now Hear This that are dealing with students have shifted to hunger relief because the impact on low-income families has just been astronomical. So I, I it's, you know, homeschooling is, uh, the chains need to be taken off of homeschooling in all states and y- you get, you know, I've been uh, – I'm dating a homeschooler, comes from a great family. They're all super smart, well-educated, well-socialized. You know, only Jeremiah, the boss hog of liberty, has some issues. He was homeschooled. So, uh, you know, we don't, we don't want him to uh, be your example of what happens to a kid when they're homeschooled. Uh, kids can turn out totally normal, unlike Jeremiah, who just, you know, I don't know what happened there. The morals are great people, but homeschooling just turned him into this socially awkward person, and uh, we're working on it here at the network, and thank you so much for con- contributing well, we, to Patreon. We can't, say it. It, we can't say it has. It was homeschooling. It, it could have happened if he was in school, too. I mean, this, <laughs> we don't know the root cause yet, so it may not be the cause of it. Christy Avery with the ex-husband shade, Alex Avery, unschooled. Another example of how it does sometimes go wrong. Uh, Jen writes, so right, two of my kids are loving homeschool. The younger one, not so much. We use actual books, whereas the public school has removed the textbooks. Yeah, school choice is where it's, uh, we are, Evan says, we are firm on my nephew only doing the virtual learning, but we noticed it was very difficult for him. The teacher was split in between in-class and remote. We decided it was best for him to be back in class, but it was our choice. Uh, Zach says public schools has trained professionals that can deal with behavioral issues. As someone with a nephew diagnosed with a personality disorder, the interaction and access to basic mental health treatment drastically improved his life. Mm -hmm. We're at a point where schools have a monopoly, and we need to break that monopoly apart and start giving people choice and moving that direction. Um, But we're giving one option right now and it's virtual learning and it's, and it's just, it's killing people It's literally people are dying because they're stuck at home. Their kids are stuck at home and they're not getting access to uh, the things that they were dependent on. So but, but you balance that too with how many kids are dying because of bullying now. No, oh, Reinhold, stop it. What people. are you talking about bullying? Whoa, whoa, I'm going to bully you. Kids still cyberbully, okay? Yeah. And they're still going to cyberbully. They're yeah. going to find each other in Discord channel, and they're going to cyberbully. You know, Escalaja is, you know, massive bully sometimes. Right. You- James <laughs> Neese. Mm-hmm. It's okay. it, like, I get what you're saying, Reinhold, but like. And Reinhold's it, it, a bully, too. The, you know, domestic I, violence is going up 100%. Like, the pandemic. It was different when I was growing up. I, I know. I was bullied, too. 
I mean, I'm still cyberbullied. Look at look at the Apple reviews. Uh, but the reality is that, like, kids get bullied in homeschool too. <laughs> uh, all right, we gotta we gotta move on. We gotta take a quick break. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the Chris Spangle Show uh, here on the We Are Libertarians Podcast Network. And tune back in. We'll continue talking about minimum wage right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to the Chris Spangle Show. Hey, if you hate those ads and you don't want to hear advertising anymore, then please join Wall Plus www.joinwallplus.com that's w-a-l like we are libertarians thank you so much for joining us here with me are ryan hold and harry price my co-hosts my writer dies uh my best buds my bros and we are talking about joe biden's stimulus plan and now we're going to talk about the minimum wage we're going to discuss the effect of raising the federal minimum wage, forcing all businesses, allegedly, in the United States to pay $15 an hour. The current minimum wage is seven twenty-five. That was raised in 2009. Um, Joe Biden has already raised the minimum wage at the federal government to $15 an hour. And here's the thing about the federal government as an employer, if they uh, they you get 40 hours a week, you make seven twenty five an hour and then they raise it to 15. They will still pay you at fifteen dollars an hour for 40 weeks because they can just print the money or steal it for more people. They can't do that. You can't do that if you run a small business. Uh, so we will uh, take a look at this. So the raise would increase the current minimum rate for federal workers to of 10 1095 per hour. So the national minimum wage is 725. The federal minimum wage for workers is 1095. That got a boost in 2014 when Obama used an executive order um, to increase it. Biden said no one working 40 hours a week should live below the poverty line. A sentiment I completely agree with. No qualifiers. Uh, how we get there is of a differing opinion. Biden which, said... Which poverty line? Well, that, that's yeah. a good point, right? That's you a know. whole rant I was going to go on, but we'll get and, there. You know, Nambia's poverty line or... Uh, no one... Uh, people tell me it's going to be hard to pass. Florida just passed it. As divided as that state is, they just passed it. The rest of the country is ready to move as well. Florida voted for a $15 minimum wage in November. They've passed a couple referendums, which is... Uh, giving people hope that it's going to trend more blue in Florida, too, because they just passed the minimum wage. They gave the vote to felons. Uh, so the Biden administration would need at least 10 Republicans uh, voting in the Senate to get its relief bill through Congress unless it goes through the budget reconciliation process where a bare majority is enough. 5149 or 5150 with Kamala Harris, the Senate president and vice president. Breaking the tie, 
that is likely what is going to happen. Uh, they will. This is, in my view, they're set up to remove the filibuster, which I have not decided on where I fall on that yet. I haven't done enough research into it, but. Um, well, they didn't work with us on the most important bill Joe Biden will ever pass, which is the COVID relief bill. This is a pandemic, and there's millions of people dead, and everybody's poor, and we need to give them money. And the Republicans did nothing, and so we had to do it through this process. And so we just – because they won't work with us, get rid of the filibuster. Uh, they'll use budget – The you know, if you do you guys remember the slaughter rule and how Obamacare got passed because basically the House passes a shell bill – the Senate passes a bill, and then a committee of both chambers comes together and reconciles the bill, and that's what Joe Biden signs is kind of the uh, – uh, mm-hmm. so, Evan, so that just happened. They got 51-50 vote with VP Harris. What just happened? I know that the Shell bill got passed. Was the, I thought that was in the House. Was that in the Senate? Let me know, Evan. Um, so uh, the 2019 version of the bill was scored – I lost my place. Um, I know. Uh, Conference committee is what you're talking about. Thank you, Evan. Uh, It gets changed in the conference committee. Um, So some experts say that a minimum wage increase could be eligible to pass via that route because it's effectively a tax-raising measure. The 2019 version of the bill was scored by the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office as having no budget effect. However, that version would likely be blocked by the Senate rules, which required items that use the reconciliation be fiscal in nature. Uh, Higher minimum wage has long been a debate amongst economists. Does it help or does it hurt? And it usually falls along your partisan lines. If you're in the Milton Friedman camp, you're anti-minimum wage. If you're in the Keynes camp... John Maynard Keynes, then uh, you're in the uh, uh, yeah Senate passed the 1.9 trillion COVID relief. Thank you, Evan. Um, so, wait, they passed the actual whole bill. D- did the House pass the bill too? Because I thought that they were still working out the details with um, Joe Manchin. What are you talking about? So Mitch McConnell blocked a minimum wage increase that passed in the House in 2019 when the economy was doing well. Republicans say raising labor costs would hurt small companies already struggling with the pandemic. Virginia has delayed an increase scheduled this year on similar grounds. Every increase in the minimum. So here's where we start to get into numbers. And before we do that, let's go to Evan McMahon, who's in the comments, giving us some uh, details. The Senate passed a budget resolution very early Friday morning, a key step for the Democratic controlled Congress to pass Biden's relief proposal without votes the 5150 vote with Harris breaking the tie came after an all night marathon vote arama uh so they have passed their first budget resolution uh so uh at 5:23 a.m. nice okay ah oh, no 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 so pre-scheduled Future increases in the federal minimum wage have very often taken effect just before or during recessions. So some have been passed in 6970, 7475, 8081, 9091, 2007, 2008. Every time there's a recession, this comes up. We need to get people more money. Uh, Let's figure this out. 
and a million more sub-minimum workers in 1991 and 1.3 million more in 1996, 97, 2007, and 2009 lost their jobs. Um, So every increase in the federal minimum wage in the past 40 years resulted in an average of a million more people being pushed into jobs paying below the federal minimum wage. Millions of tiny businesses are inescapably exempt from the law as many are as are many low wage occupations. So in 91, 97 and 2007 to 9, more than a million people were pushed into lower paying jobs than they had before because of the minimum wage increase. The federal minimum wage was increased by 26.9% 26.9% in 91, and the number... Oh, who was president in 1990-91? Reinhold, who was that? It was George Herbert Walker Bush. Weird. Uh, so who the, famously <laughs> said no new taxes, right. if I remember right. Uh, the... And the number of workers employed below that minimum wage, below that minimum, increased by 73%. It was increased by 21% in 97, and the number working below the minimum increased 76%. When it was raised by 27% in 2007, below that minimum, the, the employment in below minimum wage jobs increased 102%. Okay, so every time... You pass a minimum wage increase, you get people getting paid less. So economists have debated whether or not a higher minimum wage increases the number who are unemployed. So oftentimes you'll hear people say it just costs people jobs, right? If you pass the minimum wage, then people lose work. They go they go, go on unemployment. McDonald's can't hire people. They can't pay people. But that really asks the wrong question. Uh, and a lot of this comes from the Cato Institute. You can find all of our show notes outlined at wearelibertarians.com in the show notes of this episode on your podcast app as well. If a million people are compelled to switch from a relatively solid job with a large national corporation to a precarious job with a tiny local company or switch to delivering newspapers, mowing lawns, or cleaning houses for a living, they're not unemployed. They're underemployed. They are just reemployed at jobs that commonly have less security, no health care or retirement benefits, and no opportunities for advancement. Raising the federal minimum never causes other wages to rise in sync, as proponents allege. In fact, the trend to year-to-year increases in average wage, wage, wage growth slowed for at least a year every time the federal minimum wage was increased. So... Again, with the Cato Institute, many more American workers earn a wage below the federal minimum than the number earning that minimum, even though the latter gets all the political attention. There were nearly three times as many people earning below minimum wage in 2009 as the number being paid that wage. So there's millions and millions and millions of more people working jobs that will never see the benefit realized from the federal minimum wage increase. Now, why is that? Employers subject to the Fair Labor Standards Act must pay the federal minimum wage, but that law specifically excluded a variety of specific occupations from the minimum wage, such as newspaper delivery workers, seasonal farm workers, workers in commercial fisheries and canneries, private investigators, and telephone switchboard operators. 
as the Economic Policy Institute says. Millions of small businesses with annual revenue below $500,000, or is that $5 million? It's $5 million, are exempt from federal minimum wage unless they engage in interstate commerce. In June 2020, there were 13.5 million U.S. businesses with sales of less than $500,000, accounting for 75.5,000% of all U.S. businesses, according to NIACS. So 75% of the small businesses in this country do not – will be totally exempt from the raising of the minimum wage. Seventy Around 70 to 75% of people are employed by small businesses, not, not large corporations, uh, especially people who are going to be affected by this particular increase. And 75% of small – of that is not going to – be affected by the federal minimum wage hike. The federal minimum wage may also be avoided by paying cash in the informal gig economy or by subcontracting unskilled tasks such as janitorial services to exempt micro-business contractors. Millions of tiny businesses and contractors are far too numerous and unprofitable to be tracked and policed by federal agents, partly because they rarely file complaints against voluntary agreements between consenting adults. So, Harry, the gig, the, I mean, both of you, we've talked a lot about the gig economy. Uh, I have several income streams. This is considered part of my gigs. You know, it's all 1099. I have to pay the taxes, uh, you know, myself. I don't get benefits. If I lose my full-time job, I don't have health insurance with We Are Libertarians, uh, you know, or, or Patreon, where the majority of that money comes. I have, I just got my... 1099 from Patreon the other day. I've got to pay taxes on all that stuff uh, because it's not been taken out. And I mean, I'm not good with money like probably most other low income <laughs> workers. Uh, so I wasn't paying quarterly taxes on any of that stuff. So now I've got a huge tax burden that's due unless I miraculously find many, many, many exemptions uh, and expenses. Um, so, you know, you. You're pushing people into lower-paying jobs without benefits and into the gig economy. Well, lo and behold, part of the Joe Biden stimulus package, Biden is also backing – this comes from the Daily Signal – Biden also backs the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, or PRO Act, which organized labor also supports prohibiting contract or freelance work as well as part-time work. Organized labor strongly backs the legislation as a means of increasing union membership. A similar law in California left many freelancers unemployed. You remember the whole Uber Lyft situation in California? It's difficult to pinpoint how many jobs would be lost if, if this law were passed at the federal law level. The Freelancers Union estimates that one in three workers in the United States participates in independent work. Furthermore, about 10% of workers perform independent work, such as contracting, freelancing, and consulting as their primary jobs. Fewer than 1 in 10 independent contractors would prefer traditional work arrangement. Uh, It would not just kill jobs. It would force people into a certain type of job. Uh, He backed this legislation as a candidate as well. I am somebody that looks at their future and says, I'm going to be a consultant teaching people how to do podcasting. I want to work for myself. I want to start my own business and contract with other people. Why shouldn't I have that right? Why should I have to form a business and an LLC and pay 
all kinds of extra fees and taxes. Oh, I know, because 65 business licenses just got revoked in Fresno, California, because they didn't follow the pandemic rules. So this sounds like a bunch of BS, Harry. You got to unmute yourself, bro. Yeah, sorry. Uh, Gunther's been running around the hallway. Oh, that's okay. Um, yeah, you should form an LLC, one, just to protect your own personal finances as you do separate things and put them all into like little shells anyways. But yeah, it's the way to revoke and it is a way to control. The little California freelance bill, which has been amended several different times and had to adjust it in businesses have scrambled. And some of my favorite freelance writers have all, most of them have lost their jobs or were forced to leave California. Even some of the streamers um, that I like to watch for like a who or a sex workers, they had to get different agreements with the places they stream with. And then they had to go it and change all that to even just continue their crap it's it's just it destroyed and but also like helped out other people who were around but didn't actually live in the state of california and will do the exact same thing to the gig economy especially when dealing with the way everything works on a global stage because if i can't hire uh, a worker at well, it's the same thing like NAFTA and GATT did. It's like it's a, if I need to hire customer service people at $10 an hour to sit in a, in a booth to take phone calls, cool. There's English speakers in Guadalajara and other places of the world with the voice, voice over, uh, what was it, voice over IP server up in um, some sort of cloud server that they can have a local phone number and be not be nowhere near you. And it sounded crystal clear. Yeah. Reinhold, anything to add? Uh, about that silly little bill um the i mean i come from industry that a lot of people choose to become their own become so i'm I'm a uh, consultant but i work for a company who does all the financials and project management for me i don't have to do all that stuff that's fine that's my choice but there are a lot of people who want to do that and start their own and do their own thing uh and keep all the money themselves and not have, you know, that's, that's what they want to do. So this, these bills go into play and put these laws in place. And now you're telling people they can't work the way they want to work uh, for, for no reason. It does, it doesn't make any sense on what the purpose is other than to lock you into, you know, you're seen, you're seen as being a black market guy or out of the system or, or whatever, but that's what a lot of people like about it. So I don't understand. I mean, I can see why they're trying to do it because they want control, but that's all government does that. Right. So, so Evan, you'll have to explain this. The Obama policy restricting independent contractors impacts that California banned all freelance and independent contractors. 95% of my working career has been as an independent contractor freelancer. Having an LLC doesn't change your status with the other party. You could still be considered an independent contractor. So at what point am I uh, a business versus uh, or a corporation versus uh, an independent contractor or freelancer? Or are you saying that it is really like it's like this book, Three Felonies a Day, that our friend Hody Johns turned us on to, where you, you commit three felonies a day living in this country, whether you know it or not, because there's so many laws and you can be charged with anything. And if somebody wants to find a reason to tell you that you're an independent contractor and you can no longer do that job, they'll do it. Uh, love some clarification on that, Evan. Um, 
Go ahead. Yeah, Nick. and it's also it's also also how you um, how you pay someone. Do you invoice them? How you control it? It's really like very particular. Like versus a contractor versus a uh, uh, like a company that you do business with. It's yeah, there's really integral rules, and it actually can change and vary between different states and other things that you do for the state. Like uh, um, I'm having to uh, with you with the company I work for now. Like they're trying to offboard people, and I'm trying to tell them like, hey. You, can't do some of this stuff depending on the state that they're living in currently especially since you allow them to live remotely you know some of the things you're doing you you, you can't offboard them that way <laughs> it's like you have to give them that you have to give them that because they now currently reside in that state and you allow them to do that yeah so just to recap you get a million more people pushed into below minimum wage jobs Many of those are uh, – oh, Evan said it's the in the contract that's drafted. Are you a vendor completely separate from the control of the other business? Um, so – and you get people pushed into a new form of employment that is being banned and outlawed, especially in blue states and by Democrats increasingly because of wanting to help unions. Um, and – Every time we find a way around – what the government's trying to do to us and this is and and it always makes this is the thing and you nailed it anytime a central planner says i want to effectuate this outcome with this law the exact opposite happens and they end up making it worse so if you are drafting a law that says i want people to get paid more and have a better quality job all you're doing is pushing people into lower income jobs with less benefits and less quality with with this law it's it's if you interfere in p in in the what's called the price system so libertarians believe in the price system okay the the inherent value of a good is not the amount of labor that is put into it or just the material costs okay it is the price that people will pay for it your labor is a good that you sell to other people, and they pay a price. You set the price voluntarily with your employer. And when somebody comes in and interferes with the ability to set a price and they artificially inflate it, you then have all of these actions taking place that cause trade-offs that aren't good for the person had everyone just left everything alone because the price system – would regulate behavior, and and it's a better way of regulating than people intervening in the price market because it's all about signals, okay? Mm -hmm. the, the price that you set or the price that you pay for something sends a signal to people. If you're paying – if you're buying less of something and people are have less demand for something, then the signal is sent to everyone – make less of this, reinvest in other things and go other places that will make you more money, that will make you more profit, that will make you more income. I'm triggering the hell out of Ryan Lindsay right now, but this yeah, is basic libertarian <laughs> right. theory, right? And so hold on. And so the the price theory basically says it's – and it's creative destruction, right? So sometimes, you know, like everybody used to use a pencil. Well – if the government comes in and says, no, you must produce pencils at the same rate as 1950 in the digital era, you have all – yeah, you may save people in the pencil industry, 
but you've now robbed them the opportunity to find good-paying jobs in growth markets as opposed to staying in the dying pencil industry because eventually some other politician's going to come in and take that that out of the of the market and so people shift to other jobs and so you're interfering with a basic price signal and a lot of these low paying jobs are low paying because it incentivizes people to find better paying jobs and raise their standard of living because the foundation of economics is scarcity people are afraid that they won't have enough so they will always do things to try and have more and so they will always seek out a better way to feed their family, to to find their path to liberty. And when other people get in the way, like code violations, and we're going to we're going to uh, increase the amount you have to pay your workers, so therefore you have less investment, less growth, less workers. You lay people off. You're interfering with all of that, and you're making the problem worse at the end of the day. Harry. It's the the thing with it, right? It's that idea that they want to interact and manipulate and get into all those different things because it's just going to change the way that people uh, join different businesses. Like Evan was talking about the contract thing. It, you, you may just see like different people are just get invoiced for jobs, especially then if they're remote and they don't have to go to the office. Cool. You no longer work here. You no longer get benefits here. I don't like, I just invoice you for work, especially that you're learning to code. Cool. This is your project. I want this thing done. I'm just going to buy some lines of code from you and I'm going to invoice you. You're not, you know, and if you don't give and, and I'm going to contract for everyone else from all of these different people. It is, it is going, the, uh, the unintended consequences of that type of law going to different fields is it's going to be drastic and it scares the bejesus out of someone like me in my industry because yeah technically like someone can invoice me for like hey set up these set up these switches and i'll just invoice you instead of getting paid or getting any type of yeah benefits. because you work in an industry that is an online business dealing in physical products <laughs> making it easier for those physical products to be bought and sold by people who are really in just individuals looking to start, you know, like looking to start their own business on the back of a company like yours that allows them greater access to physical products because mm -hmm. of digital technology. Correct. And the way that we do, and the way our company is set up, it's like, well, are they considered employees? We don't technically pay them. They give us things and we print out stuff or we do things for them. Like, are they considered employees at that point? You yeah. Know? That's also the scary, simple fact. Like right. That. Does does the person who rents their house on Airbnb are they an employee? Right. Are they employee of Airbnb or even the people that like they let's say they've got Airbnb properties in different like let's say you've got an Airbnb property in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and you've got someone else there to clean it up there. Like who's who's the employee now? You, you know, a company like yours gives somebody all the jobs that I have from my day job to my side gigs didn't exist 20 years ago, barely 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Really, in some ways, not even 10 years ago because you couldn't do video streaming in the way you can do now. Um, it has afforded me a job and good a good amount of money to spend most of that money uh, and create economic growth in my community. Mm -hmm. Your company allows me to create a new business to create new opportunity. And I'm going to be at the point in the next 
year or two where I can start hiring people. You know, because I'm 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 reaching my bandwidth, so now I'm looking for an independent contractor at some point in the next you know few months, mm-hmm. because now our Patreon allows me and affords me the opportunity to pay somebody to do some of the editing or some of the the social media posts or the copy editing or the posting. You know, like helping mm-hmm. helping deal with the many shows on the network, right? Um, and so a company like yours allows me the income to do that. And all of the stuff that we've talked about today in Joe Biden's plan and some of these rules means I'm not going to be able to do my business. Mm-hmm. So, wh- like, what are you doing? Just get out of the way. <laughs> Just get out of the way. Let yeah. the free market rule. And that's the one thing we were kept talking about, like the thing that's going to wreck, really wreck the economy was the aspect of like they're just going to get in the way to allow people to get back on their feet and do what they want to do and get things done. Most people know? are really fucking indignant when they're treated poorly, too. This isn't Upton mm-hmm. Sinclair in 1902. You know, most people in the Internet age, because of the end of scarcity, can see what everybody else has and how other people mm-hmm. are treated, unlike 150 years ago. And they go... I'm not going to stand for this. You know, how many millennial em- friends and employees do you two have in me where one one thing happens and you're like, I am not to be treated this way. <laughs> you're like, bro, you're not you're not feeding pigs in, in 95 degree heat. Just deal with deal with like people have a high degree of mobility. And when you give people a high degree of opportunity economically mm-hmm. through the free market. It means that better work conditions flourish because people are attracted to that and mm-hmm. poorer working conditions go away because nobody wants to work there. So the hardest the hardest thing right now in running a business is hiring people and retaining those people. Go ahead, Harry. We were because we were building the new facility, right? And they're, they 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 built this amazing like state of art printing area, and then they, they kind of like dropped the ball on this other thing. And it's like, hey, you guys should probably air conditioning that. And it's like, well, why the the machines don't these machines don't need to be air conditioned? I go like the workers do. Yeah. You want to know why you have poor quality in the other the other plant? Because that plant's not air conditioned. The, the- right. <laughs> You know, you're going to get somebody who really doesn't care because they're sweating their face off during the summertime working in this unair conditioned area to, you know, to make a hat like this. No one's going to do that. I you was, know? And if yeah. the, and then if they are, they're going to sit there and, uh, you know, they're going they're going to be a reason why they're willing to take that. And you, you don't gonna, you're not going to want this person. So I was just listening to a podcast between two people who to build commercial construction office spaces, and they were talking about how. The biggest problem that is retention is recruiting and retention in jobs because there's so much mobility. There's so much opportunity for jobs now because of the Internet age. And so that has impacted the way that offices are built because now they need amenities. They need they need things restructured to keep people there, especially when now they have the option of working at home. So you get the tennis court in the you know, back into the building, you get air conditioning, you get better conditions because of the higher degree of employment freedom. Uh, yeah. Yeah. My company, we, they closed the, cause they closed our downtown office, which took away our gym access. So they just gave us LA fitness for free for health. And, right. You know, yeah. So I have, yeah. I have one friend that they, their company gave them a $4,000 
bonus for everybody to spend on health equipment. So, so they got like a rower. You know, this is a major company that everybody would know the name of, and they did it for all of their employees because right. if they that, – that means they're going to be on that rower every day, which means that their health insurance costs are going to go down. Reinhold smiled because he's, he, he's like, I wouldn't be on the rower every day. No, it's, a, it's a great place to hang your clothes. <laughs> I, just, I just bought an exercise bike that has like a little desk on it that folds up. So, you know, because I'm not, I'm not able to get to the gym as often as I need to. And I need physical exercise because I'm stuck in my house all the time now. Because I'm not going to, you know, I used to go to work every day. And at noon, I'd go over mm-hmm. to the gym. I'd come back and finish my day. You know, so I'm adjusting. And that's the thing. People are fluid and adjusting and always trying to seek out their better life. And the the job of libertarians is to remove those barriers for people. And the people that have insurmountable barriers work to find ways to create opportunities to help those people get over those barriers. And, and that is done through private organizations. That's what the whole point of my Now Hear This podcast is about, is talking to local charities. I'm putting some of that in the Chris Spangle uh, feed because I want you to hear how private charities can effectively help people and also get you to donate to them because they need more money. They have a scarcity issue too. Uh, and so, you know, Apple has no scarcity because everybody wants an iPhone, but, you know, the you know, the children's bureau that's desperately in need of, of your uh, donations needs to have no scarcity issues. Um, so, uh, Darla says, feel like you guys could be harder on the Biden administration. Darla, this entire episode is explaining why the philosophy and policies of the Biden administration are wrong. And maybe you'd like us to call them evil and Kamala Harris is a baby killer. I'm not going to fucking do that. There's plenty of other podcasts that will feed you that trash, but we're here to talk about policy. We're here to explain why all these are bad ideas or good ideas or what needs to happen and and give you solutions. I'm not going to sit here and rant about politicians and tell you why AOC is evil and Bernie Sanders is this and... Like if you want to, you want your anti-leftist, you know, candy for breakfast. You can find it somewhere else, but that's not the type of show we're going to be doing anymore. Uh, it's cheap. It's easy. It's low. It's lowbrow. You can find it elsewhere. Um. And speaking of policy, yeah. Um, I do kind of want to go off a bit more in a rant on some of the uh, negative effects of the unemployment. Rate because a lot of people don't think about these things. Like they they look at the the person who who's now who's like at twelve dollars an hour is now getting fifteen dollars an hour, and there's three dollars difference there. But then the business has to kind of find where to get that three dollars from, so they might raise the price of their product, their service, to compensate for it. And now that costs a little bit more, so people come out in a negative end, or or even maybe break even, but. What happens to the guy who's making fifteen dollars an hour now? Now you've just given somebody a twelve dollar, you know, from the minimum wage from seven dollars and now fifteen dollars. Now this guy making fifteen dollars an hour who was making twice minimum wage is saying, "I'm making minimum wage now. I can go anywhere and get this this money. I don't have to work as hard as I've been working. I want more money for what I'm doing." Some 
unions have it in their contracts that their pay structure is tied to whatever the minimum wage is. So if the minimum wage goes up, everybody gets a raise. So look at the labor costs have just expanded, you know, huge for everybody, not just the people who are below the minimum wage. And that really turns up the cost of goods and services at that point, right? So then the people who are now making minimum wage go buy some milk and they find out it's 30 cents, 40 cents more. And they go to try to buy food and they find out the food's gone up or the, the quantity has gone down, like the candy bars. We used to get a nice candy bar for a quarter. And now for a dollar, you get like a half a size of what you used to get because it keeps shrinking it down. Uh, so the real problem I find with all of this other than that is something that, you know, I've always harped on is that the cost of living is different everywhere. Everybody knows this. I mean, I don't understand why politicians have a problem with that. The cost of living where I live is different than what the cost of living is in the city, in Indy, which is a lot different than what it is in Chicago, which is a lot different than what it is in L.A., which is a lot different than it is in Mobile, Alabama, right? Yeah, that's why some people are proposing a sliding scale of, you know, if you live in this state, in this area, then your minimum wage will be this, and if you're in New York, your minimum wage will be 20 Instead of just saying the price system will take care of it. Yeah, well, if, if you're going to do a minimum wage, it has to be tied to the local cost of living there. Or what the, when, when you talked earlier about what the um, uh, living wage is, that's why I said living wage is different all over the place, right? So if you, even if you're going to have a federal minimum wage, which I think is a horrible idea for that reason, because all you're doing is targeting the median again. As I was saying before, you're targeting a median group to affect them. But then these people who would be working for less than that and still be making a living wage are now not allowed to, you know, and people who are in New York City are already making more than $15 an hour, so they don't care. Right. So you're not really helping anybody at that point. So if you're going to do a federal minimum wage, which I still disagree with, it has to be tied to whatever the local cost of living is. So they have to do a, some sort of formulation and tie it to that and have it change every so many years based off of the recalculations of that to even make it feasible to work. Yeah, Evan says the states already have that authority. The federal minimum wage is just the floor. And th- there there are some states that already have the $15 minimum wage, for instance. It's just the... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, even the state is wrong, right? Because... Like I was saying, my the cost of living here is much different than it is in Indy or Carmel. You know, I think the yeah. cost of living in Carmel is a little bit different than out here in, in the boonies. So, mm-hmm. Okay, so let's continue on with these great notes. Job losses happen because higher labor costs gradually force more and more marginally unprofitable branches or businesses to close that would have otherwise been open had they not had this uh, artificial insertion into the labor force. And higher labor costs encourage investment in labor-saving machinery such as self-checkout. So when increased federal minimum wage shrinks job offers among such large interstate companies, that does not leave the resulting displaced workers no choice. It leaves them no choice but to uh, to replace those workers. Um, they can queue up with large number of other unskilled people. Uh, excuse me. All right. I'm reading this wrong. Sorry. Um large interstate companies that does not leave the resulting displaced workers no choice but to remain jobless 
They can instead queue up with the large number of under unskilled people who always compete for the many below the minimum wage jobs that are either legally exempt from the federal minimum wage or effectively off the books. So it pushes people into black market employment. The trouble is such increased competition for exempt jobs after the minimum wage goes up drives wages down for those who are already working below the previous lower minimum wage. It makes the poorest poor because they have the least skills. And so the people who have the least value in terms of their labor exchange then get unemployed, which increases the amount of dependency on unemployment and federal welfare programs. Federal law does not exempt low-wage workers in big multi-state chains like Hilton or McDonald's. Their workers could not possibly have kept working at a wage below the increased minimum wage. And the evidence of rising below minimum wage jobs shows that many did not keep their previous FLSA-covered jobs. So what that means is that when the McDonald's employees were replaced with a kiosk, that, that could have been a job, but it isn't a job because they can't decrease their wages to allow that person to stay employees, employed. They still have the same demand. They just now have a smaller supply for employees. They still need to meet the needs of their customers, so they develop new technologies that don't involve payroll. So right. it's it's a huge shoot in the foot. Yeah, and if the and if everyone, someone's going to say like, well, the technology is coming anyways. Yes, it is coming. The automated kiosk is coming, but if the wages didn't go up and the kiosk came anyways, then someone just reallocate that position. Yes, cool. The kiosk is there. That person will go out and make sure the table stay cleaner, or they will go out and greet a table, or greet, or they can make food faster. The position just gets moved. But with the wages moved up, the position just gets eliminated. So every time the federal minimum wage is increased, jobs that is covered by the increase lose employees, and then there are greater job losses in those areas, and then places where it's not covered see greater demand for competition for employee employment, and the result is just less people working. So no two economies are identical or immediately comparable. Regional, state, and municipal economies vary in ways that lead to different outcomes when wage floors change. In all reality, the result of any given minimum wage hike likely lies somewhere in a mushy middle. Some workers see a bump in pay. Some workers see no change in income because they're making at or just above the new minimum wage. Some workers are let go, and some workers are never hired. And so that means that in different areas, it could be any number of percentages for those variables. So you will often see private companies say, we're going to voluntarily raise that wage. Sometimes this is a shell game for good PR. Uh, Target promised to voluntarily bump the pay nationwide for their employees in 2017, except for many of the intended beneficiaries, the results weren't positive. An employee said, I got that dollar raise, but I'm getting $200 less in my paycheck, Heather said, whose hours have been cut from 40 to 20, explained CNN. 22 other Target employees were interviewed by the network of uh, CNN, and they, all of whom seen their hours reduced even as their hourly rate increased. Minimum wage increases don't have to lead to layoffs, 
to hurt people who are supposed to realize the benefit. Companies can reduce hours to keep take-home pay roughly the same or slash hours even further. Um, a 2019 report from the CBO says that the new uh, federal minimum wage would cost 1.3 million jobs and it would boost paychecks for 17 million workers who would otherwise earn less than 15 per hour. About 10 million workers. So here's the trade-off, right? You can look at it as good or bad, make a moral judgment, or we can look at this as trade-offs. You can increase the federal minimum wage, and you'll see 17 million workers um, make $15 an hour, but you're going to have 1.3 million jobs lost, and you're going to see hours cut. (laughs) Uh, And you'll see a lot of people out of work. So if Congress hyped the minimum wage to 12 by 2025, uh, about 5 million workers would benefit from bigger paychecks and 300,000 jobs would be lost. So when everybody goes, well, why not just $100 an hour for the living wage? There are... There's real math involved here. So you go $12 an hour, you lose 300,000 jobs. You go $15 an hour, you lose 1.3 million. That's a big jump. Roughly a million, if I'm doing my my math right here. Um, An increase in $10 an hour would benefit only about 1.5 million workers and would have almost no effect on employment levels. Someone who has a hard time finding a job that pays $8 an hour will be completely out of luck if employers are required to hire only workers who are worth $15 an hour. So um, I'm going to uh, – so, so yeah, go ahead. Weigh in, Harry. I heard you. I, I was going to say like the – like because – that is going to affect things, especially in this COVID world. Some businesses probably have learned, like, you know what? We can, this drive through only thing is working for us. This not allowing people into the store with their dirty hands and their dirty kids. No, keep them outside. Drive through only. No, no, thank you. Take your crap and go home. Yeah. What? You don't have to hire. Yeah. Now the cleaning crew is the people who make the food. You just got to clean the kitchen. Hey, we can go for a smaller footprint. Yeah. What it the the like the you know it's going to affect things in different ways just or with what people have learned for the Mr. Beast thing is just like you know like do we really need our own kitchen can we share a kitchen with other space it's it so you just need one cleaning crew for five different businesses it's it's going to make things more efficient in certain areas but it's going to do so artificially because of the laws affecting that way it's not going to happen naturally which. You know, it is going to shatter and wreck some jobs, and and it's going to be the people who are most hurt, like teenagers. No one's probably going to want to hire a teenager at fifteen dollars an hour, or that because the main things, the main reason that people love Chick Fil A and Culver's is the army of teenagers that they hire that just take care of you and take care of the place. Yeah. Um, Evan says, and I've seen this at Chick Fil A. Uh, some large franchise fast food chains have already started planning new drive-through only stores, you know, like rallies. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I, which, you, which rallies by me closed, and I miss the big Buford. I'm a big Bu- Buford fan. Just like their fries. The fries are some of the best fries. Like I want their fries, but a, like a Five Guys burger, but rally fries. Rally's over by you closed. Yeah. Yep. It's a it's a quick loop now. Which I don't need to be lubed quick. I, I want my Buford. <laughs> you have to drive another five blocks to to get that now. 
Oof. So this goes to uh, uh, abolishing price and wage controls, and and this is what what you see with uh, th- this is a price control on labor. Minimum wage, you're, you're controlling the price on labor. And Cato did an, an article on this. Again, it's in the show notes where they talked about this in relation to the pandemic. So abolish price and wage controls. Economists tend to oppose price controls at the best of times, um, but there has been a new willingness during the pandemic to set some of these. So COVID-19 has proven a demand and supply shock in product markets, and these shocks have reverberated into labor markets. Social distancing changed changed consumer taste, worker behavior, and workers being more reluctant to do certain jobs have altered the supply and demand for workers across localized markets. I've seen that to be true, but I also feel like a year on, everybody's sort of ready to go back to normal. Like, you know, April... Grocery workers were like, all right, this is, I, I feel unsafe. You know, February 2021, grocery store workers were like, I need my money. <laughs> you know, like, I'll, you know, I'll deal with the plexiglass. It's fine. Let me get back to work. <laughs> um, we might therefore expect wages to also adjust to these new conditions as we have seen in certain sectors. Amazon introduced hazard pay. You know, the free market will adjust. So Amazon introduced hazard pay temporarily for its frontline workers to compensate for their greater infection risks. And retailers saw surging demand increased wages to attract more workers. Elsewhere, the big decline in economic activity from lockdowns and ongoing social distancing actually led to customer nominal weight led to nominal wages for at least four million private sector workers in the early months of the pandemic and many employers Canceled planned wage increases as well. So as policymakers prevent price adjusting upward through anti-price gouging legislation, they also prevented some workers' wages adjusting downward through minimum wage laws. You know, 29 states have higher minimums than 725. Uh, Some jurisdictions affected by COVID-19 have very high local wage floors like New York City with 15 an hour. Half of the states raised their rates in the past three years, while a number of local governments with their own higher wage minimums jumped from five to 52 today. Uh, In normal times, one would expect minimum wages, if set above market levels, to reduce the demand for lower productivity employees, eliminating employment opportunities. Some studies have found the aggregate impact on employee levels of, of modestly set minimum wages can be small and co- consigned to particular demographic groups. So there are good reasons to think that a lot of these past increases in minimum wage levels might result in more damaging impacts on job prospects for low-paid workers during the pandemic. A Bureau of Labor Statistics analysis at the time of the lockdowns last year found that occupations with lower wages are more common in the shutdown sectors than anywhere else in the economy, which we all knew. Lots of businesses and industries hit especially hard by depressed demand and social distancing practices after the lockdowns are those with large number of minimum wage workers. Industries with high concentrations of lower wage jobs at, include restaurants and bars, 12.3 million workers, other retail, 6.5 million, travel and transportation, 3.5 million, entertainment, 2.6 million, and personal services, 2.1 million. 
the the pandemic is li- likely to have reduced underlying market wages in many sectors with high number of minimum wage workers, meaning minimum wage laws are likely to have more damaging effects in creating unemployment in the sectors the most hardest hit, hardest hit by the, the lockdowns. The pandemic itself is likely to have exacerbated what economics economists have dubbed the more dynamic impacts on employment. During expansions, the focus for lots of businesses is on meeting the rising demand rather than cost-cutting through laying off workers. That means older, low-skilled workers, labor-intensive businesses enjoy a greater and a better general environment for their survival despite the pressures of recent large minimum wage increases. But you combine that with the large shock of the COVID-19 pandemic, Mm -hmm. and it's going to generate an unusually pronounced cycle of business ruin and creation. Many firms with old production technologies will likely disappear and be replaced by new technology-intensive firms employing fewer low-skilled workers. That will make the impact of the past minimum wage hikes which increased the cost of employing low-skilled labor, more pronounced. Empirical evidence shows that minimum wage rises can be particularly harmful to the job prospects during downturns. In 2009, after Congress raised the federal minimum wage, economists Jeffrey Clemens and Michael Wither estimated that states experiencing the largest rise in the wage floor of the result of the federal policy change lost several hundred thousand more low-wage jobs than they otherwise would have. In New York State alone, about one million people worked in retail fast food as cashiers, wait staff, cooks, and bartenders. Many employers will no longer be able to afford the state's 1180 minimum wage or New York City's $15 minimum for people working in restaurants. People who work in restaurants cannot make $15 an hour because businesses cannot survive. The reason that you have tips is that the... Uh, the reality of a restaurant is that because it is so low margin, they have to reduce the amount of fixed cost inside of a restaurant. You'll hear this in a conversation with a guy who manages restaurants. Uh, he talks about how you have to live off of tips because if the restaurant all of a sudden has to pay all these massive payroll f- costs, not only will the people making tips make less – because they're typically making $20, $22 an hour, then the restaurants can't survive because they can no longer pay for food costs. They cannot pay for health insurance. They cannot pay for all of the things that the politicians who want to force them to pay could could possibly afford. So if you pass a $15 minimum wage, especially in the middle of the pandemic, you are going to see – more when the congressional budget office says 1.3 million jobs will be lost you always triple to quintuple the amount of uh cost or loss that you will see from the congressional budget office it's just a ironclad rule of politics that they underestimate things by a massive amount it okay the uh, and it's also going to affect like through all this cuz of the covid of the um you look at the 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 essence, the bedrock of the minimum wage law, and which originally designed. Well, okay, I don't want to say designed to do, but one of the effects of the original minimum wage law was to was to to stop black employment. Um, mm. Let's see. Let's, really, I didn't know that. 
Yeah, a lot of it was to like, yeah, because a lot of black people were getting paid for different jobs. So like, how can you get them to stop? Well, you've raised a minimum wage up. So what is, you know, you can get somebody like, well, do I hire these black guys for this little bit amount? Cause they can easily undershoot these white guys or have since minimum wage, but like, well, now they're the same way as the white kids. So I'm going to go with the white people, you know, mm. just because of nepotism or anything else in the area. So yeah, it, uh, Thomas soul wrote about it in, uh, what was it? Uh, Oh, crap, he writes such long titles for books. <laughs> I think it was in Black uh, Rednecks and White Liberals they were talking about that and how that uh, minimum wage laws which just just totally just reaped through and just destroyed black unemployment. Hmm. Well, black employment and, and increased black unemployment. So if you look at the minimum wage graph, you can also have it charts with um, um, black unemployment. Every time it raises up, black unemployment goes up. Um. Reinhold, anything to add before we end? No, I think I got a, got it out of my system there earlier. So Okay. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you listening to The Chris Pangle Show. Make sure you go support us at Join Ball Plus. If you found this interesting, if you learned something, please share it with a friend and say, hey, they're spitting fire here. Um, all right. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you again next week. <laughs>